0: Well, I've had the privilege of ministering to families here that come to us for child care. And I did the math, and we've had over 2,000 kids that have come through Grace Kids Preschool. And I've seen families changed. I've led uh, parents to the Lord in my office. We've always been churchgoers. Our kids have been raised that way, and our kids are churchgoers.
1: It also has trickled down into even the grandkids, their, their, their children. Both of them met their uh, their spouses here, and so it just, uh, it was really great.
0: Definitely starting off our journey at Grace was to grow, and, and then in the last few years, things have changed where we're more looking out, like wanting to grow and share the Lord with others, that others would know Him, love Him, know community, what uh, Christ-like community is like.
1: It it has blessed us. We we've been through hard times and stuff, but the Lord was always there to give us a good foundation, and and let us work us through. And we went through some devastating stuff, but you know, it it all turned out for the better. I think over the course of like the last you know 19 years, there's been like different seasons, but the community aspect has always been there.
2: I've been pastoring 51 years. I still feel like a rookie, and this church is helping me become more mature.
1: That's true, it's really true.
0: To feel seen is really powerful. I feel like to know that other brothers and sisters in Christ, we could come together, share our struggles, share the hard things, share the joys. And so to have people to do life with, that's grown us even more. When I. Sh- to our parents in our preschool, I'm very pleased to say this church has been here over a hundred years and it's been the same church that it hasn't changed. And knowing the different pastors that have been here and their commitment to the word, this is a gem in our community and it's had an impact in this area so that speaks very well for the people who have stayed faithful and encourages us to keep on going. This is the church that God put us in. This is where we were placed. People will go where they want to go or where they feel they're being fed and I think we've always felt that we were being fed here and we have benefited from that in so many ways. Yes. So many ways. If someone going through something that they need to talk to someone and they need guidance and what the world is giving them is not helping, can we be that place?
1: We've had probably six or seven girls from my daughter's soccer team start coming to church and they make up like half the middle school youth group so it's beautiful to see like how God's using our family in an in evangelical way.
0: Th- through thick and thin, when God calls your heart you stay and um, that's what led us to stay uh,
1: just being faithful mm-hmm. to where he calls you. I've seen the growth of this church, I've seen like um, the gospel being preached, mm-hmm. I've seen teams go out to you know different countries and I, so I feel like I see the growth and I I sense like the life that's in this church. I feel like the Holy Spirit's mm-hmm. moving. It's Really cool to see that you know God gave us that hope, but it's been realized. Just that, like, cause at that point, it could, I mean, it could, it could have all went gone downhill. Mm-hmm. But God's like, no, ha- stay here, have oh, hope, 'cause okay. I will, I will uh, do the work of shining brighter than before. So.
2: Hey well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good? Good, good. You look good, smell good, sound good. It's good to be with you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're just joining us, we're in the week two of the vision series. And last week we started by looking at the story of Nehemiah, and we foundationally found some truths about where there's no vision, people perish. So we said the lack of vision is deadly. Lack of vision in your life, lack of vision in our church can be deadly in our lives. And so then we said, God is taking us somewhere, he's heading us, leading us to new creation as new people living in new heavens and new earth, and so we want to be a part of that now, and so we framed out the series saying we're going to be a rebuilt people in a rebuilt place. So we're going to continue the story today. If you have your Bible, would you grab it and turn to the book of Jeremiah? If you need to turn to page one in your Bible to find Jeremiah, no judgment, Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29 in just a moment, uh, as you're turning there, I want to talk to us a little bit about like the cultural moment we're having because we don't follow Jesus in a vacuum, we're following Jesus in San Diego in 2023 in the real world. and so that has some implications on us. Uh, but in order to talk about that, this is going to take a little bit of intro, a little bit of setup. Uh, I was reminded one time I was preaching at a charismatic church in Texas. And uh, that's one of those churches where, like, they yell back, amen, and, you know, hallelujah, and just, like, shouts you down the whole time. So nothing, nothing like grace. Uh, just, just a little joke. And I, I was talking about uh, needing to set something up. I was like, listen, we're going to get here, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a while. we got our journey together. And a guy in the back of the room yelled, take your time, pastor, take your time. I was like, thank you, sir. <laughs> that's so reassuring to me because I'm insecure about this long intro. So uh, in the spirit of that guy in Texas, I'm going to be taking my time this morning because I have a long intro. But when we get to where we're going, you'll be like, ah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So we're going to get there, but it's going to take a minute. Okay. We are living in what sociologists and historians call a postmodern or post-Christian world. Basically, That means that there is a growing skepticism for any structures and institutions or religions or anything that claims to be absolutely true, there's a growing skepticism for that. And this has changed some assumptions we have. This has changed the world in a lot of ways, even in the last 20 years. So one illustration, Uh, the impulse of our nation uh, as America, uh, the impulse of our nation used to turn to God after a crisis. So I'm old enough to remember 9/11. I was a freshman in college when uh, when that event happened. It happened on a Thursday. That Sunday in church, church was packed. Now that may have just been East Texas. I don't know, but church was packed, like standing room only. More uh, people than Easter were at church, and there was a national response of prayer and repentance and confession. Everyone turned to God. And then you fast forward 20 years, and you look at the national crisis that we had recently with COVID and the pandemic. And what happened is our impulses changed, and we didn't turn and run to God in prayer and confession and repentance, but rather we, we've sort of found ourselves in this place of self-reliance, and we can fix this. I was listening to a podcast where a pastor in New York City, he was talking about this. He studies revivals, and he said, after when COVID happened, we didn't have, and this is his words, he said, we didn't have a father to tell us what we're supposed to do. He said, I wish Billy Graham would have stood up and said, repent, like pray, ask God to to move. But instead, the church went to technology. The church went to self-reliance. And this guy was very gracious, but he he said, we we missed our moment. We responded with vision and the futures online when we should have responded in prayer and fasting. And and I was really moved by that. So you, you may not see it the same way, but the impulse is changing. And historians say it's because we've gone through three different eras. So stay with me. The first era was called the pre-Christian era then you move to the Christendom era and then post-Christian era so pre-Christian era this is like the book of acts Christianity's on the scene but it's new it's it's not like central to society at a national level but there's there's something happening here that that there's this gospel movement on the rise but it's not central and then everything changed in 313 AD when a Roman emperor named Constantine made Christianity no longer illegal and persecution worthy, but rather made it legal and stripped it from being persecuted. And then 10 years later, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in like 323 AD. Now Constantine, some believe became a Christian, others have different thoughts about that, but that ushered us out of the pre-Christian era into the Christendom era. So from A.D. 320 till now, we've been living in this Christendom era, which basically means Christianity has been accepted as the majority religion, social and legal standards in the way of society have, have reflected Christian values. Now, of course, this has ebbed and flowed throughout history, but just, just think for a moment about like uh, the, the Revolutionary War era where Thomas Edison, not Thomas Edison, sorry, Thomas Jefferson uh, <laughs> Very different Thomases, um, different historical functions. Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, it almost sounds Christian. There's this, this like men and women are created equal and endowed by the Creator. All men are created equal, endowed by the Creator, by certain rights, with life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, that we have under God on our money. The Pledge of Allegiance references a world under God. So that's, that's that Christianity influence at the, at the center of culture. I saw something recently that talked about uh, a typical day in the life of a bank in London in 1850. So their schedule, what did a bank do in their schedule of the day in 1850 in London? And the first thing they did at 8.30 in the morning, from the CEO to the janitor, everyone, every employee at the bank met in the lobby for a time of corporate morning prayer. 1850, just rewind your mind. What were they doing in the bank? They met to pray. First thing. Can you imagine your job tomorrow being like, hey, 8:30, we're saying the Lord's Prayer in the lobby? You better be there. Uh, can some of you work at Christian institutions that don't even do that kind of thing. Like, that just seems crazy. And yet that's what was happening in London in 1850. So, what this means is think think of the Christendom era as like, Christianity is the faith, Christians are the believers in the faith, but Christendom is the collective culture and institutions in the universities and the ministries of the, debate, uh, of the faith. Now, there is a great debate on whether or not this has been good for Christianity. Great debate. I have written multiple papers on this, on whether or not what Constantine did in 320 was good for Christianity. So that, that, that's, it's widely debated whether or not this is good, but it's, it's happened, this is just historically true, and it's changing right before our eyes. Uh, I remember my senior year of high school. This is like the year 2001, again in East Texas. This is the year that prayer was removed from public schools. I have a memory of this because uh, here's, here's why I remember it. High school football, this is why. Our junior year, you would pray before the game, like a local pastor would come and get on the mic and pray before the game. And then our senior year, you couldn't pray before the games anymore. That was taken away from America. America you couldn't pray anymore. And so there was a moment of silence that would happen. And you'd be standing there and the announcers would be like, you know, hey, we're going to have our moment of silence, and then the crowd would start like almost like in they would start saying the Lord's Prayer. Like in the moment of silence, like you just hear this mumble, our oh, father, Lord, in heaven, all be that. Like it would just take across the arena of the Lord's Prayer of us us southeast Texas people defying the government to pray during the moment of silence. Like I, I remember this and there is, again, a great question on whether or not that's good. Here's why. You could believe you were a Christian just by being American. You're a Christian by association. So to share the gospel with someone, you almost had to convince them they weren't a Christian so that they might, in fact, become a Christian. So it's a great debate on what's happening. Then that moved into what we're experiencing now is the sun is setting on the Christendom world, and we've moved into the post Christendom world. Now, this started with the Enlightenment and many others go back further, but it's happening more and more now. And this isn't the same as pre Christianity. This moves beyond Christianity. So, Mark Sayers, who I've learned a lot from, says this He says, post Christianity is not pre Christianity. Rather, post Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruits. Post Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while gutting it of its costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual will. Mark Sayers says, the culture we live in now wants the kingdom without the king. This is the idea. Uh, John Mark Comer, when he writes about this, he says, post-Christian culture is like the Western world having their rebellious teenage years, uh, where they hate their parents while they live in their parents' house and eat their parents' food. And so in other words, this, the moment we're having right now is surrounded by and built on Christian values, yet it's trying to move beyond them while not recognizing that that's how they got there. So here's what I mean. You can't take survival of the fittest philosophical beliefs and somehow land at caring for the poor and marginalized. You don't get that. You don't get survival of the fittest to care for the marginalized. That's a distinctly Christian value. The, the value of Imago Dei, the theology of Imago Dei says, I should, by like, my joy, I should inconvenience myself for the sake of the marginalized. That's a Christian value. That belongs to the kingdom, and yet the world comes along, and, and they want to have compassion and empathy and justice and all these things that actually only come from Christ. And so you've, you've probably felt this. The post-Christian world is not amoral. It's very moral. There are new laws that we must follow. There are new structures we must obey. There are new religious creeds. And, and this is where cancel culture comes from. How do you get canceled? You don't obey something you're supposed to obey. You don't change your you know, Instagram profile picture to the right thing that month that you're supposed to change it to that month. I know that's a kind of an old dated illustration. But you remember, you remember the pressure of like, oh no, am I doing the black square? Oh no, am I doing the, like, who who are we for this month? Who am I against this month? Like, that was happening over and over again. And so you feel there's new laws. You add on top of that the ongoing isolation and radical individualism, and you have a a society of anxiety and anger and frustration, wanting the kingdom without the king. You've you've seen this. Maybe uh, I've, I've... I read a book about the, the secular creed, and it's, a, it's about a yard sign. Maybe you've seen this yard sign. I brought a photo of this. Uh, this, this is the cultural creed that we are now putting, putting in our yard and living by. Um, and I, I don't have an opinion on this. I'm just simply sharing this with you. So if you, if you have this sign in your yard, uh, that's okay. You're, you're safe here. I mean that. If you have stolen this sign from someone's yard <laughs> and burned it, first off, not cool, Second, you're safe here too. Like this is this is what we're we're learning how to be people that live under the reign of King Jesus. But but do you know you I I know you know what I'm talking about. I know you feel it that the sun is setting on Christendom and there's some changes happening. So here are the major shifts of the post-Christian world. Here are the shifts we're experiencing. Number one, from majority to minority, from the majority to the minority. Uh, Barna Institute just did the largest research study on millennials to date, and 56% of millennials identified as Christians. But within that 56, they had subcategories. 24% identified as nomad Christians, which meant they didn't go to church. They grew up kind of around church. They probably said the Lord's Prayer during the moment of silence in East Texas football games. That's a nomad Christian. I don't do that, but I kind of identify that. Then they had habitual Christians, which have gone to church on Christmas and Easter, go sometimes, but their lifestyle is no different than the rest of the millennial world. And then they had what was defined as resilient disciples. And only 8% of millennials uh, self-identified as they pray every day, they read their Bible every day, they live in Christian community, they they live under the vision and the authority of the New Testament. Isn't that a great question? Do you live under the vision and the authority of the New Testament? Only 8% of millennials, said they are resilient disciples. And this is where we stole our mission statement from as Grace Church, that we want to make resilient disciples because they are the minority, that that see the vision Jesus has for the world as the vision they want to live under. So we have gone from the majority to the minority. Number two, from a place of honor to a place of shame. The government, high-level officials, used to be led by Christians all of the Ivy League schools in America used to be seminaries. Can you even imagine that? Used to be seminaries. The title of pastor used to be a title of high honor in your city and in your, you know, in your state. And Christians no longer have that because Christians are holding on to ethics that the world sees as barbaric and ancient. And so now you'll hear like as an argument against your ethics, that, that whatever year it is, you'll hear like, it's 2023, you can't still believe that. It's 2023, you can't still live like that. Like, come on, get with the times. As if we are getting wiser as years go by, I would greatly challenge that assumption. But it's like, come on, this is what year it is. Get with the times. And I'm like, I'm not sure getting with the times is the best move for f- human flourishing, but that's not my sermon. So There is a fringe of society feeling when it comes to ethics. We've gone from the place of honor to a place of shame. And then lastly, from widespread tolerance to a rising hostility. There's an increasing pressure and stigma that goes along with being a Christian, especially in the workplace, especially at the university, with college students, especially in academics, especially in the medical field, especially in the government. There is a rising Hostility. I'm not saying for a second we're being persecuted. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't mean that at all. But what I mean is, years ago, if you were a Christian, you were just kind of weird. You're like that weird guy. You're like that weird guy that didn't sleep with his girlfriend before marriage. You're that weird guy that doesn't want to go get blacked out drunk. You're just kind of weird for having those beliefs, and you're like, oh, we'll, we'll deal with him. You know, it's fine. He's just a little weird. To now, you're dangerous if you have those beliefs that's hate speech if you don't agree with this. If you don't speak up on this thing, then your silence is really loud. And so there's a danger now to some of the ethics that used to just be tolerated. So, so in light of all that, why, why are we saying this? Here, here's why. We may be closer to the New Testament experience of following Jesus now than ever before. Many, many of you, you, you you've You look at this and you're looking at the Bible and you're like, man, I I don't know if I like this. I I don't know if this is right. Like, I really like being the majority. I don't like being the minority. And I'm sure there's a tension even now about what, what is our vision of what God wants us to be in this world. And so we may not like this, but the Bible is very comfortable in this space. It even has a word that it uses for Christians in this space. And the word is exile, Exile. Exile means you're an outcast in your own country. It means that you're an alien in a place where the dominant values run counter to your personal values given by God. Historian Lee Beach says, exiles are those marginalized by their inability and unwillingness to conform to the tyranny of the majority opinion. We are exiles. We are where we don't wanna be and we're separated from our homes. And again, this may feel new to some of us. You may not like this. This is the reality that's happening in our cultural moment. And you may not like it. It may feel new to you. But this is not new to the people of God in the New Testament. And it's not new to the people of God in the Old Testament. This language is pervasive. This is where we looked at uh, Nehemiah last week. The people of God are in exile. This is where Jeremiah comes from. So after years of of God sending prophets to Israel to tell them, repent of your immorality, repent of your idolatry, repent of your injustice. They don't obey. And so God removes his pastoral shield from them and Babylon invades the city, destroys the temple. Some of the people are kept in Jerusalem, but others are forced 700 miles east to live as strangers in a new land, completely out of place. So if you have any church background, think of the story of Daniel and the lion's den. That's in exile. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. That's an exile. Think of Queen Esther. These stories are exile stories. And the prophet Jeremiah is used by God to write a letter to the exiles in Babylon from Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. He's writing 700 miles away. And here's the question. What does God say about living in exile? What is God's vision for a life in exile? How do you live for God in a culture that doesn't value God? That's the question. And Jeremiah answers that in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. It says this. That was all intro, by the way. I told you. I told you it's going to take some time. No, 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 no. I like, I like that you guys are trying to become clappy, the 11 o'clock service. You're changing. I respect that. Real growth mindset in this service. I like it. <laughs> Jeremiah 29 verse 4 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Just like right there, God's like, I did this. I, you're in exile. I did it. So what's, what's his take on this? Verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams and encourage that they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And now we've come to the most well-known verse in the Old Testament, the verse that's on every coffee mug and t-shirt and hat and Facebook post and Instagram with like the sunset, like this is the verse with La Jolla and yike yeah, this is, this is that verse and it does not mean what you think it means. This is to God's people in exile for their disobedience. God sees them in that. He sees them where they are. He's encouraging them where they are and he's telling them it's not going to stay like that forever. I'm doing something here. I'm using you guys for a purpose here. So verse 11 is not about you, church. I'm sorry to tell you. For I know the plans I have for you. That's a people. He's talking about Israel. I know the plans I have for you in exile. Those of you in exile know the plans I have for you. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I'm not harming you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on my name and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me And find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declared the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place for which I carried you into exile. This passage is so compelling to me. It's so beautiful to encourage a people in exile. Do you hear the tone of this? It's very pastoral. It's very loving. God God says, I see you. I see you in exile. I know you're afraid. I know everything doesn't make sense, and it feels like you're the minority, but I'm actually with you. I am with you, and I have a vision for you to flourish in that city. And here's how you do it. You don't flourish by being against the city. The city is not your enemy. You do not flourish by acting like the city. The city is not yours. You still belong to me. You flourish by being for the city. Living for the city is God's vision for his people in exile. And then these false teachers, he references false teachers. You know what they were talking about? They were peddling a nostalgia for the past. They were like, remember what it used to be like. Remember the good old days. And they weren't living in the reality of now. And God says, don't listen to them. I haven't sent them. So listen, church, if this is true for God's exiles in Babylon, would it not equally be true for Christians living in a Babylon-like world? God gives us a vision for how to live. He tells us how to be as people, how to be as a church, and it's something I am so moved by because in this text, it exposes the two alternative visions that are not worthy of our efforts. There are alternative visions that we can live towards, and they are not going to get us where God is leading And those two alternative visions are separatism and syncretism. Separatism is essentially a vision that says stay separate from the city. Stay separate from the world. Be against the city. Let's stay away from the big bad world. Our houses should be refuges, refuge from the big bad world. Our church should be a refuge from the big bad world. Every day we're mad and outraged at something that's going on in this big bad secular culture. And look at what they're doing. And so what happens is we think to ourselves, we need, we need, I need a Christian doctor, a Christian dentist, a Christian coffee shop, a Christian school, a Christian chiropractor, a Christian everything. Like, I, I need Christian everything because I can't be a, a part of this big, bad world. And it's, it's the metaphor of the battleship, that this vision that says we're separate and we're fighting the world and making sure we hit the right targets and here's, here's the grievous reality of that vision. It makes the mission field our enemy. The, the people that we're supposed to love, the people that we're supposed to share the gospel with, it, it frames them as our enemies. So yes, church, we are to be withdrawn from sin, absolutely. But we have never been called to be withdrawn from society. You can be withdrawn from sin and still remain a part of society. So separatism is not a worthy vision for us. And then secondly, syncretism, which basically means you assimilate to the host culture. You act just like the world, you operate just like the world, but you sprinkle some Jesus on top of it. So it's basically like, do everything else the world does, except like, don't go to hell in the end. Like, pray a prayer one time, and then you'll, you'll, be, you'll be good. And, and it's that idea of this cruise ship, this luxury liner that says, your life is about your comfort. This church should be about your comfort. You're the customer, and the customer's always right. We should design everything to look as close to the world as possible because you don't want people to be offended when they come into the church. And so, you got to teach and serve in service a way that attracts people because it should really look just like the world, but like kind of have Jesus as a gotcha at the end, like this bait and switch sort of thing. And and the sad reality is, you cannot reach the world if you look just like the world. You cannot influence the world if you don't stand out from the world. So neither separatism nor syncretism are a vision worthy of our efforts. But Jeremiah puts forward a third vision, and it's the vision of shalom, peace, that we should seek the peace of the city. The Hebrew word shalom it means where the peace of God reigns, where his presence reigns, where there's unhindered intimacy, where there's perfect peace, perfect rest, perfect tranquility. There's all things non-anxious, all things deep breath. And, and, and the vision here is, hey, have the shalom of God in your heart, and then have that shalom make its way to your city. Don't run and hide, but don't look just like the world. Instead, you know what you should do? Build houses and settle down. Put roots down in the city. Plant gardens. You ever planted a garden? It's horrible. It takes a long time. It's terrible work. You, you spend like $100 in 20 weeks to get one tomato that costs $1 <laughs> at the store. But it makes you love the, the work. It makes you love the ground. It makes you study San Diego dirt and like paying attention to the weather patterns. It, it, it makes you invested. It's beautiful. Marry and have sons and daughters. Get, increase in number, don't decrease. You know how you have sons and daughters is you get married and make babies. Like it's a biblical command. Young people, get married, have babies is a Bible verse. Like you know how babies are made, right? I don't have to tell you. It's like good things, good things in that context. It's great. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Can I get an amen from any married person in the room? (laughs) Live in, in these thick ties of relationships, familial relationships where you build houses and plant gardens. That sounds awesome. Increase, don't decrease. And seek the prosperity and the peace of the city. In other words, take your neighborhood seriously. Take where you live seriously, your apartment complex. Take that seriously. Take your work seriously as an act of worship and love for the city. Ask the questions, where can I support things? Where can I join in on things? You, you got to be mindful of local clubs and local restaurants and just joining in stuff and picking up trash and caring about the city. And the, the fifth thing in this text is pray for the city. Pray to the Lord for the city because if it prospers, you'll prosper. And that doesn't just mean like pray for the Padres in postseason time. Like last year, we were all praying for the city. Yeah, right. We were praying for the Padres, which is good. You could do that too. You should root for them. Uh, they're not playing right now. We're not talking about that. But you, you start to love the things that happen in our city. Did you know San Diego was voted the number two best destination for vacation in 2023 uh, behind New York City, which I disagree with greatly. Uh, <laughs> but that's what we were voted so wanting our city to flourish is an ask of God on the life of a believer. Did, do you think that way? Do you feel this? You pray to God for the city. seek the peace of the city, engage in the city. These are, these are beautiful concepts that God's saying, this is how exiles live. Number six, he says, "Don't, don't let the prophets lie to you. Don't be deceived by the false prophets. Don't listen to what they teach. They're lying to you. Don't listen to them. And then lastly, he says, seek me, seek God here, which means God is working in our city and he's asking us to join him. It sounds like this vision says, be the best citizens of the city while having boundaries that prevent you from doing things that look just like the city. And making sure that you're engaged so that you're not separate from the city, joining in on PTA and local school boards and coaching soccer and bringing snacks and and supporting local things, being vital to the city, putting God's glory on display anywhere that you can join in. Uh, For the last, like, I've gone like six times, so I'm weary of using this illustration, but I've gone like six or seven times to a local run club here in North Park. They meet on Wednesday nights, there's like 100 of us, and we run five miles together. Doesn't that sound awful? So... (laughs) We all suffer together on Wednesday nights. I drop my kids at Awana's, then I go to the run club, and we run together. Any of you guys in the run club? Anybody? Nobody. Oh, yes, what's up, my friend? It's awful. It's totally awful. But we do it. It's fun. It's great. And then we run together, and then they draw names for prizes at the end, and then they go to a local brewery and hang out and, you know, do things that you do at a brewery. So, here's the tension, oftentimes. You'll think to yourselves, man, what a great idea, like a local run club right there on El at Milestone Running, uh, right across from Taco Bell, which is not a good place for running because you're just like hungry. So <laughs> here, here's, the, here's the typical Christian thinking. Um, man, that's a good idea. You know what we should do? Um, hey, pastor, you know what you should do at the church? You should have a, a run club that meets at Grace Church. You should have a Christian run club. That prays before they run, you know, for injuries and stuff, and then runs and then comes back and you like read a Bible verse and get some snacks and like basically do the same thing, but just make it Christian. Like that's a typical way of thinking. I, I have thought that many times. What this text is saying is no, no, no. Do you enjoy running? Join the local run club and see what you can do that is good news to the city that blesses the city. How can you bring snacks? How can you bring something that blesses them? And then you start to think that way and this text changes your approach because it says go be an influencer with boundaries, but engaged. And then you go, wow, that's that's beautiful. And then you look at the story of Daniel in the Bible and you're like, man, this brother had influence, but they told him he couldn't pray, and he's like, that, that that's a boundary I'm not crossing. Of course I'm praying. Throw him in the lion's den. The next morning, he's petting lions. It's like no big deal, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, we're not going to eat that food. Test us. Can we eat our own food? They eat our own food. They grow and influence. They're leading. They're well-known. And they're like, you got to bow to the, the big statue. They're like, we're not bowing to the big statue. They're like, you better bow or we'll throw you in the fire. They're like, you can throw us in the fire. We're not going to bow. They go in the fire. Jesus, before he's born, meets him in the fire somehow if you want to make your head explode pre-incarnate Christ is like I'll walk with you guys in the fire like there's no way to communicate how glorious those stories are when you start to see that God wants to use people in exile for his glory but you've got to engage if you want to be used by God and it's interesting when you look at church history about what worked and what didn't work and so I love studying the the era of pre- christianity And there's been many historians write about the distinctives of the early Christians. What did they do that allowed Christianity to be so explosive in their time period? Uh, Tim Keller recently wrote, uh, in the last couple of years, he wrote an article in The Atlantic outlining the five distinct things the early church did that allowed them to be exiles in Babylon, allowed them to stand out in a culture that didn't allow Christianity. And here were their five distinctives. Beautiful stuff. Number one, multi-racial and multi-ethnic. The early church had Christian communities that didn't all look the same because they had a common identity in Christ that was more fundamental and more foundational than their racial identities. And so they came together as as very different people groups, all under the lordship of Jesus, and that looked counterculture. That did not look like the Roman Empire. That stood in stark contrast to the Roman Empire. Number two, they were spread across socioeconomic lines. Christians were unusually generous with their money and their time, particularly in taking care of the poor and the oppressed, not just within their family or within their gr- racial group. Christians were the only place where you found people expected to give to those who didn't have enough. That stood in stark contrast to the Roman Empire. One uh, early church historian said, the first century believers shared everything but Their wives. I've read you that before, but think about it. <laughs> Shared everything but their wives, so they were multi-ethnic. They were across socioeconomic lines. Number three, they had an active resistance of infanticide and abortion. There was a high value to advocate and protect the most vulnerable in society because everyone was made in the image of God. Christians were the first ones to start these places that rescued and adopted abandoned children. As early as AD 100, you see the sanctity of life terminology and ethic uh, pervading the early church. Unwanted babies were not simply thrown out in the early church because they would be brought in when the Roman world would would cast them out. Number four, marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for until death. Christians were a sexual counterculture in the backdrop of the Roman world. They abstained from sex outside of one relationship, which is heterosexual marriage. This was in the midst of a society that especially for married men, Just said, you could have sex with prostitutes or slaves or children or whatever you want. It's all perfectly fine. That was the world they lived in. And Christians came along and says, no, no, no. God, who created the world, created sex. He's designed it in such a way that the only relational container strong enough to hold the beauty, majesty, and mystery of human sexuality is marriage. And it was created by God and given by God. And it's covenantal. One man, one woman, until death do us part. And that stood in stark contrast to the world. And number five, nonviolence. Christians believe in non-retaliation and forgiving their enemies, and even those who were killing them in the arena during persecution, they did not fight back. Now, I felt the room is different now, I know, I know, but stay with me. If you were to plot these things across our political landscape right now, the first two things sound like liberal positions, taking care of the poor, taking care of racial injustice, and the second two you plot and they sound more like conservative positions, where you have the sanctity of life and sanctity of marriage, and nobody wants to touch number five, which is nonviolent. Like, nobody wants that one. Uh, that's, that's a weird one. Now, I get it, but when you look at the early church and what historians say set them apart, these five things, whether we like them or offended by them or not, they were not controversial in church history, and they are not controversial to the New Testament. This is just the way the early church lived. I'm simply reporting the news to you. I didn't give a single opinion on that stuff. That's just telling you what it looked like in the early story of Jesus' followers. Now, they disagreed. Jesus' followers disagreed on the best way to implement these things, but they all agreed that we must prioritize these in order to stand out in our generation. That's how they lived. And we find ourselves here in this interesting moment in history where there's political power grabs all the time there's political conversations all the time who's got the right Jesus it's happening and then you look at this and you go what if hear me out this is a crazy thought what if the church of Jesus Christ was designed to defy both the left and the right as a completely different kingdom operating under a completely different king and I didn't say don't vote I'm just saying what if neither political party holds within itself all of the things of the mind of God what if neither one of them is good enough what if only King Jesus can offer us a vision that's compelling for the whole world? Because those five things are thoroughly biblical, and yet none of those five things are on each side. You don't find them like that. And yet there's a temptation for us to, be, to believe that our power today comes from alignment with the political party or some alignment with the social agenda and misunderstanding that, no, our power comes from God. We are what the historian Arnold Toynbee called a creative minority. A creative minority. We're the small group of people that God uses as catalytic people to reverse the brokenness of the world, to reverse the decaying of the world. If you think of a bell curve, like the things are going down, God uses a small group of people to turn that around. And what Alan Tornby called a creative minority, the Bible calls a remnant. A remnant. This is how the early church grew in exile. A few people gathered together as resilient disciples seeking the glory of God and the good of the city, and God used them to provide exponential growth. So God is inviting us as a people to be a remnant in exile. That's his vision for us in San Diego. And that is how God has always worked throughout history. In 1 Kings chapter 19, the prophet Elijah, he's so stressed out about Israel, he's like, they're never going to turn around, they're never going to get together, this whole thing's a mess, and God encourages him in 1 Kings 19, and he tells uh, Elijah, don't worry, Elijah, I have a remnant. I have 7,000 people in Israel whose whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. I'm going to do something, Elijah, and I'm going to use a remnant. I'm going to use a minority to influence the majority. This is how God does it in the story. And there is no greater picture than Jesus Christ himself being the one true remnant. Because if we want to know the real story of the gospel, it's that the whole world, since the Garden of Eden, the whole world has been in exile. All of us have been far from home, all of us have felt displaced. And praise God, we have a Savior that didn't look at us in exile and say, I can't go to those people, they're dirty. I must remain separate from them. I can't go into the world and engage with them because they're the big, bad world. I'm going to stay up here with you, Heavenly Father. I'm going to stay up here with the Spirit. I'm going to stay in heaven. I'm going to stay away from them. Praise God our Savior didn't embrace separatism. And praise God, our Savior didn't show up in the world and go, you know what? Holiness doesn't matter. Like, I'm just going to do what everybody else does. I'm going to act like the world. No, he didn't do that either. He came into the world. He was in the world, but not of the world. And that's what he's asking of his disciples. That's what he's asking of us as followers of his way. He, you see this in the high priestly prayer at the end of the book of John. Jesus never prays that his disciples would be taken out of the world. He just prays they would be protected in the world that we would be like lambs sent among wolves. But this is not the time to be afraid. We are poised. We are poised to see God pour out his spirit on our church and in our city if we will live as a remnant in exile and stop jockeying for power in other places and start saying, I'm here to be good news. I'm here to serve. I am here for the city. I am here on a mission from my God who has a vision for me, so I'm going to engage. I'm not going to be separate, but I'm not going to act the same. I'm going to have boundaries, but I'm going to get in the game, and I'm going to trust that God can use me just like he used people in the Old Testament and the early church. Tim Keller, he ends his article with this one quote. He said, the early church surely looked like it was on the wrong side of history, but instead it changed the world with a dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. That should be our aspiration as well. So you go, Josh, what's our vision? A dogged adherence to the biblical gospel. That we are so committed to the gospel and so committed to our city that we become the best kind of citizens. And that North Park loves that Grace Church is here. That we start to think about, even the questions we ask is, is, um, what if we use that building for the city and not just for the church? What if this whole space was good news for our city, not just for our church? What if our house churches started to engage in places to be good news for the city, not just for our church? What if this became the lens by which we made decisions? We started to think this way and dream this way. And then what's so beautiful is if we live like this in a culture of individualism and isolation, people would see us living in deep relational unity And they would say, man, that's so much more beautiful than what I'm experiencing. In a a culture that's pleasure-seeking to no end, never finding satisfaction, they would look at us living wholly satisfied, non-anxious lives, and they would say, man, that seems so much better than this thing I'm pursuing. In a culture of chaos, they would look at us and see order, and they would see that we are under the lordship of Jesus, and they would say, man, that seems so much more beautiful than what I'm pursuing. The early church did this in a culture that said every day, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. The early church walked the world in exile saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And God used them to turn the world upside down. And church, it's now our turn. It's our turn. And a vision that fights the city is not good enough. And a vision that's the same as the city is not good enough but a vision that says we want to seek the peace of our city. We want to see God's presence reign in our city. Now you have something worth living for. And if we can do that as a church, and we can do that with our building, we can do that with our house churches, we can live like that for missionaries, then by God's grace, maybe he'll use us to pour out his spirit. Maybe he'll use us to see exponential growth of Christianity in our day. I would love to be a part of that. But in order for us to participate, we must repent of our separatism. If you're here and you're more of the battleship person and you go, I don't like the world, Josh, maybe you can surrender that to the Lord. Maybe you're here and you have the syncretism problem and you're like, truth is, I look just like the world, man. Like, except for like a couple hours a week, I look just like the world. Then maybe you could surrender that to God and say, God, help me. Help me not be separate. Help me not be the same. But help me live in a way that seeks the peace of the city. If we can live like this and live together like this, then there's no possibility, there's no way to stop what's possible. So I want to pray that we would be this kind of people. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the possibility of being people that seek the good of the city. God, we thank you for your vision in Jeremiah 29 that shows us how to live in exile. God, I pray that none of us leave church today afraid or worried or saddened by the story of our culture, God, but we leave trusting you, trusting that you put us here, and that you see us and you have a plan for us, and your plan is prosperous. But God, we have to surrender. We have to surrender ourselves to you. God, forgive us for times where we wanted to be separate from the world. Forgive us for running and hiding from the world. God, sometimes that feels so much easier. And God, forgive us for acting just like the world, wanting the approval of the world. God, we repent. But there are so many times that we've looked just like everybody else. And God, both of those are out of your design. I pray that we would be Christ-like in our jobs, Christ-like in our Schools, Christ-like in our neighborhoods. And that where we go, the peace of God would go. God, give us your vision. Help us get excited about being in exile. Because that's where you've placed us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.